So we are driving uh, what I think is a bit west of Oxford Middle School, right by Lake Orion, and it is a snow-covered street. Folks are decorated for Christmas, and you still see a lot of flagpoles half-staff from what I assume was the order by the governor last week to lower the flags. And... Um, this is Kim Belware. She's a national reporter for The Post, and she is in Oxford, Michigan. A small township out 40 minutes north of Detroit, and it's Christmas time. There are hand-painted signs on the cute downtown storefronts. There are lights everywhere, decorations. And there are also lots of signs in almost every window that say, pray for Oxford, Oxford strong. And so it's very clear that even if you haven't been following the news since late November, something happened in this community. As you may know, what happened in this community was a school shooting. Four students were killed, seven people were injured, and a 15-year-old student was taken into custody. This ended up being the deadliest school shooting that the U.S. has seen in more than three years. But what was really unusual about this tragedy is that the parents of the shooting suspect were charged, too. They were charged with involuntary manslaughter. And that's because investigators found they purchased the gun for their son as a gift. They took him to a gun range. All of these are legal in Michigan. But further investigation revealed that they were aware of warning signs in their son and, and seemed to ignore those warnings. So this is a situation that is so complicated for a community that is very tight-knit. And that's why I wanted to hear from Kim. She has been in Oxford talking to parents and community leaders and business owners, trying to figure out how this town is dealing with the fallout from this unimaginable tragedy and what happens next. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 10th. Today, what it's like in the days after a school shooting. And later in the show, a remembrance for our colleague, Fred Hyatt. Oxford Township is this small, close-knit community. It's a uh, little less than 23,000 people. Overwhelmingly white community, kind of a mix of blue-collar and, I would say, upper-middle-class workers. Politically, it transitioned in 2016. It was kind of one of those pale blue spots on the map. In 2020, it's a little more pale red, so definitely one of those swingier districts in eastern Michigan. But it has this really, really strong small-town identity. People say that they are proud to be a small town. They're proud that they are not a big city, that they know their neighbors, that they're really tight-knit. And I was just so curious, how is this town getting on? What's going on with kind of the relative quiet? What's happening in this very tight-knit community that's been seemingly shaken so, so profoundly by this shooting? And, you know, we wanted to kind of get a sense of what the narrative was here and how is this community going to move forward. So who did you talk to there? One of the people we spoke with was Bob Chapa. He's a dad of three kids who go to the schools in Oxford. Uh, my oldest daughter, Nora, is a junior at Oxford High School. Uh, our middle 
uh, son Bobby is in eighth grade at the middle school and our youngest is in fourth grade. And they all happened to be home on the day of the shooting because his oldest daughter, the high schooler, had a fever. And because of the, the COVID protocols that the school has in place, my wife kept our daughter and our two younger boys home. So their their experience of this was very different. Um, they were all home safe. We're incredibly thankful. They now have a little bit of, of guilt, uh, of survivor's guilt, especially my oldest. Um, you know, there was a, a part of the day when her phone just started going crazy because her friends were texting her or calling to make sure that she got out. And are you safe? Where are you? I don't see you. Uh, you're not at Meyer. You know, th- those types of messages. And she didn't really know what was going on. Truth, truth is, she didn't even know if it was real. And then, of course, my wife and I started to get messages and we understood this is a very real situation. And um, she's now, she's dealing with trying to be as supportive as possible with her friends um, and other people in the community that have had a really rough time. You know, she, she has friends that were able to get out right away and they, they never really saw or heard anything. And then she most definitely was connected with some of the victims and some other folks that, that have, are, are going to have a hard time for a very long time getting over it. Bob wanted to do something to help, so he started making these signs. Oxford Strong, Pray for Oxford, You Are Loved. Our business here, Signorama, we've been in business for 22 years. It's a family-owned business, my wife and I. You know, from, from my experience, oftentimes when something tragic happens in an area, the best way to start to bring peace to families is, is to make sure that everyone feels like they're a part of something bigger. And when you use the, the tagline of Oxford Strong or Reading Strong or, or any other city that's gone through some hardship, um, it tends to be a word, when you, when you add that word strong at the end, it makes people feel a little bit more confident. And uh, rather than thinking about what's negative and what's happened that's, that's tragic, they start to think, oh, I'm part of my neighbor. I feel the same way that my neighbor does, or I feel the same way that that business across the street does. We're all rallying in the same direction. I've covered a lot of tragedies, and it's interesting to see the way that Oxford has pulled together in response to this. It's not really being politicized at this point. There's not a discussion of guns or laws or anything like that. It's just about how do we help our kids process this? How do we help them feel safe again? I just want the teachers who I know have shaped my kids, and I want the administrators who I know are having an incredibly difficult time right now trying to justify their jobs and their decisions. And then, of course, the students who just feel alone or sad or scared. If for half of a brief second they see that message and it gives them a little bit of something to smile about, even on the inside, I'll I'll just keep putting them up. I'll put them up everywhere. What were some of the things you heard from the people you talked to about their reaction to the shooting or why they think it happened? What they think went wrong here. When we were talking to business owners and and people who were trying to do some good, um, make some positive contribution, it was still very raw for them. Um, They were uh, pretty emotional talking about how it has affected their kids, their community, themselves. 
they really did not want to talk about the shooter. They were very happy to talk about the good of the community and the positive way that uh, they could people could show up for one another, but they were not interested. One person even said very explicitly, if you want to ask about him, if you want to ask about the shooter, if you want to ask about the parents, I don't want to talk about that. But if you want to talk about the good in the community, you know, that I'll, that I'll share with you. So it was still, a, you know, some pretty clear boundaries that people were laying down. They do not want to give attention to Ethan Crumbly, to his family. Um, and they're really not interested right now in even speculating on motives or what went wrong because they said for them, it's still too fresh and they're still in that period of grief and just wanting to be there for one another. So it, it came across pretty strongly what was going to be um, in and out of play. And, and really what was on their minds was how are their teachers and their children and um, the people they love going to feel safe in this place? What do you make of that? What do you make of the, it seems like, refusal to talk about the political aspect of this? Because I do feel like more and more there is an embracing in some communities where shootings like this happen, where people are saying, yes, children died. And so we need to talk about why that happened and the laws and the structures that allowed that to happen. But it sounds like that's not how people in Oxford see it. I almost wonder if some of the people in the community don't know the answer themselves at this point. Hmm. We did hear, <laughs> it was pretty consistent where we would talk to people and every once in a while someone would drop into a lower tone and say, it's terrible that this happened, but at least we're not talking about politics anymore. And I tried to ask around and, and get a sense of, you know, what the past year had been like as far as, you know, fights over COVID, over mask mandates, over national politics, over state politics. In Michigan, there's been no shortage of uh, political rancor. And, um, you know, nobody really wanted to get too much into that, but they definitely acknowledged, yeah, that's that's been a thing. And there seemed to be a broader acknowledgement of it's just been difficult and it's just been divisive lately. And they were really grateful that Despite this tragedy, uh, as awful as it is, people were able to set that aside and, and come together. So there was, I guess, a relief, it almost sounded like, that people were able to transcend the political differences, whatever they have been in the Oxford area for the past year, and come together for this. But, you know, we did we did get indications from, I think, one shop owner who said, those conversations will come. They're just too soon for us right now. You never want to be cynical about something like this. The care and concern that people have here for one another and, and for even strangers in their community, it's real. But the reality is there are going to be new questions that emerge as the investigation uh, continues. There's already been a lawsuit filed against the school. And right now, everybody is is very much on the same page and kind of in the same place. But as people uh, start to break off and separate in how they're grieving and how they're remembering and what questions they want answered. There's bound to be divisions. Uh, my name is Michael Bouchard. I'm the Oakland County Sheriff. What I keep telling people publicly or privately is you got to find a way to process something that's unfathomable. You've got to find a path forward. No one's going to heal. I mean, we use the word heal. You're never going to be the same after this. Um, but You've got to find a way to put right foot, left foot, and, and move forward and find a way to process it and go on living. 
What else are you interested in and um, planning to follow? There was a lot of focus from official levels on down to mental health, to trauma, um, to community healing, and this real recognition that there are going to be ways in which people are affected and in which people are hurting that are not going to be apparent, uh, that are not going to be easy to deal with, and and that it's going to take a long time. This is not a situation you can put a Band-Aid on, that you can do one seminar on, that you can have one vigil on and call it good. They know that they have been transformed by this event. They recognize that. And it's a sort of... Um, interesting and and really sad self-awareness because I think the more communities deal with things like this, there is a new sophistication that I'm seeing emerge in the way communities respond. And, And this response seems to be a pretty comprehensive one. No community ever wants to be the community where this happens, but if they are, it's something that now has been established. There's a bit of a template to follow of what some best practices are. And um, it's been fascinating to see how this community works that out for itself. I'm really going to wonder in Oxford, since this school year has been touched by COVID and and now touched by this tragedy, what's it like for, you know, the students whose senior years are disrupted, who are coming to the high school next year? What is that going to be like six months from now? Where is this community going to be and what are they going to do with all of that attention and all of that community goodwill that they've had flowing through here? And are they going to be able to maybe avoid some of the more acrimonious fallout that we sometimes see pull at communities once a criminal investigation or a trial starts or when questions of blame start to get unignorable? What is it going to look like for the school district? Because right now a lot of people seem very loyal and seem very much in solidarity with the school and in appreciation of what the school has done. But at the same time, people are starting to file lawsuits and say that the school was part of the reason that four children are dead and an entire community has been traumatized. So those are going to be difficult questions that this place has to reckon with in the months and years ahead. And um, that's something that I'll, I'll want to see how that all gets resolved. This story was reported by Kim Belware and Rennie Spernofsky and produced by Lena Muhammad. It was edited by Maggie Penman. After the break, one more thing about our beloved colleague, Fred Hyatt, who passed away this week. We'll be right back. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. This week, the Washington Post lost a dear colleague and friend. 
Fred Hyatt was the Post's editorial page editor. The editorial pages of a newspaper are basically the opinions, this place where there is this open exchange of thoughtful ideas from all different kinds of perspectives. And that is the spirit that Fred brought to his life. He was warm and welcoming and interested in what everyone had to say. I still remember how he was one of the first people who made a point to introduce himself and say hi when I was brand new to the post. He really took the time to make every person he worked with feel seen. And we are really going to miss him. Today, I wanted to share some reflections from his colleagues in the opinion section about who Fred was and how he affected so many lives. Fred hired me to the Post and then was my editor and my boss. He was a champion of young writers, giving many the chance that started their careers, believing in us sometimes before we believed in ourselves. He is the first boss I ever had right out of college. Fred's the only boss I've ever had. So to me, he's quite literally incomparable. But I think that even if I'd had a hundred other bosses, he'd still be incomparable. For 14 years, I learned from the kind, exacting, caring, and brilliant man that was Fred Hyatt. He privileged the politically persecuted individuals and groups from every corner of the world. He spoke up for the Jehovah's Witnesses of Russia, for journalists who were jailed in Azerbaijan, for the political prisoners of Nicaragua. And he always used to tell us, unless we do it, no one else will. When a Rwandan writer I worked with, Diane Shima Regara, was jailed by President Paul Kagame's regime not too long after she wrote a piece for us criticizing the government, Fred told me, you know, Karen, just write something. Let her know that we're supporting her and let the government know that we're watching. A few weeks later, another writer of mine, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, was killed by Saudi agents. And then Fred used the awesome power of the entire op-ed section, dedicating months to demanding justice for Jamal. What I found most unusual about Fred, really from the beginning of our friendship, was the combination he had of being a gentle, almost sweet-tempered person in, in his dealings with others, combined with an incredible toughness and commitment to principle. He was always that way. It made him a great reporter when he covered the Pentagon. It made him a great foreign correspondent. But most of all, it made him a great editor and leader for us in the opinion section. He was always genuinely interested in points of view he didn't share and in sharing those points of view with Post readers. He wanted the Post to publish well-argued opinions from all sides, even opinions uh, with which he vehemently disagreed. It was his unwavering commitment to diversity of opinion that made the Post opinion pages what they are today, an island of reason, discussion, and debate in a sea of ideological conformity. You see, Fred himself was a beacon in everything he did, in the way he lived his life, in the way he searched for, convened, and nurtured talent, in the way that he was always opening doors and creating an even bigger table so more people could add their voice to the chorus of writers in the opinion section. This big, loud symphony with discordant viewpoints and varying octaves, and Fred at the center, the conductor with an open mind and a hungry ear.
To hear more about Fred's legacy and the lives he touched, listen to the Post's Opinion podcast, Please Go On. The host, James Homan, has spent this week talking in depth with his colleagues in the Post's Opinion section about the hole that Fred has left behind. On behalf of everyone at Post Reports, Fred, you will be profoundly missed. This remembrance was produced by Julie Deppenbrock and Ted Muldoon, who also mixed today's show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. Our engineer is Sean Carter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.